0: Oh my gosh. It's the Caro-Dub After School Theater
1: Camp Power Hour. Yay. Oh my gosh. It is the Caro-Dub After School Theater Camp Power Hour Episode 3. I am so excited that we're doing this. Thank you all for being here. Um, I'm Caro-Dub. This is my power hour. And it's a different night this week, but thank you for being here anyway. As always, we will be streaming this conversation live on Twitch so I can interact with the chat, such as it is. And then we are going to release it in a podcast form later on. It's going to be good. Uh, so tonight I will be joined by Regina Aquino and Lady Dane Figueroa-Aditi, and I'm very excited about that. Before I get them on um, and introduce them, I want to talk a little bit about kind of laying the 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 groundwork and framework for some of the things that we're gonna be talking about. And um, yeah, it's a lot. So tonight's chat is all about healthcare and the actors' union. Um, And I'm gonna start by asking the question, what the hell even is socialism? Because I think socialism has a lot to do with the Uh, development of some of these social issues that we have going on in our country. Uh, Even though, you know, we live in a capitalist system, some of the things that we have are designed in part by socialism or some of the theories of it. It always takes very different forms. So we'll start with the Webster's Dictionary Definition. Socialism is any of the various economic and political theories advocating collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and the distribution of goods. Or as Karl Marx said in 1875, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. In America today, it is often used by Republicans and Democrats alike as a dirty word Trump recently has said on record countless times things like socialism must always lead to tyranny and that it is an alarming and new trend in our country even though the practical applications of socialism vary widely all over the world and the history of socialism in the USA is nothing new. The Socialist Party won 6% of the vote in the election of 1912, uh, which was 108 years ago. We're gonna cut out that pause so it made it look like I knew the math right away. It's gonna be good. Um, And then a couple decades after that, many of FDR's social programs were based in socialism. For example, social security, which is something we still have, kind of, is a plan based on something that was first done in European nations uh, by Otto von Bismarck in 1889. And he was a really, really right-wing dude. But simply because he did a social security plan, he started getting called a socialist because of that. So um, as as we go further into history, we start seeing that it's all these really different kinds of ideologies that get tacked on that word socialism, and they vary greatly. Um, yeah, so like I mentioned before, Republicans in the United States have been using socialism as a buzzword excuse me, for decades in an attempt to scare Americans away from trusting social programs, which could absolutely benefit them. Ronald Reagan, when he was critiquing Medicare, said that one of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. Um, and I think the effects of that fear-mongering are still felt today, obviously. And I think that, has a lot to do with what we're gonna talk about tonight because there is still a massive debate around universal healthcare. There are a lot of people, so many people, who refuse to even think about it because of their fear connected to the word socialism. Um, However, there was a study done in 2018 that said that more Americans today see socialism as a synonym for equality than governmental control than they did in 1949. But I saw that, and I was like, that still feels really dissonant to me, because I feel like no matter where I go, there's always, when I get into political discussions with people, there's always someone when they feel really uncomfortable with universal healthcare, single-payer system, their discomfort comes from the fact that it's tied to socialism. And in fact, some of them, I've had conversations with some people who are like, well, why can't you just call it something different? It's the word that bothers me, which is really interesting to me. Um, Yeah. So then then the, the whole argument is, well, what we have here is not actual socialism. Well, what we want here and what more of here is not actual socialism. What we really want is democratic socialism, which still works in the confines of capitalism so it's not an actual like state run um government in that way it's still capitalism but it's just really trying to get more social programs to the people um recently bernie sanders i say recently what is time it was it was like three years ago But he described his hope for what democratic socialism could be in this country as something which is shaped by examples of successful socialism around the world. So, you know, it's hard because when you when you follow an ideology, even in part, you do. You do have to take the good with the bad, like we have to be able to own the fact that, yes, Denmark exists, but so does Venezuela, Um, because they both do come from the same nugget of ideology and theory. Um, But practical application is so different, because once you get human beings involved, it just goes in really, really different places. And yeah. But no matter how many times it seems that people try to explain, no, there's a difference between socialism and democratic socialism. The Trump administration and, and Republicans for many years have been so sneaky and really, really just too frustratingly good about using the word socialism with abandon to paint a picture of democratic socialism as being equal to the Nazi Party, the Soviet Union, or the United Socialist Party of Venezuela. It's very frustrating, and they're using it right now. Like Mike Pence is, is on camera talking about how, you know, under the guise of Medicare for All democratic socialists want to have tyranny in this country, which is absurd, but here we are. Um, yeah, and and so I, I think the question for me is, well, what is the system that we live under right now? We don't live in a socialist country. We live in a capitalist country. And there are so many people who talk about how capitalism is the antidote to tyranny or the antidote to communism or socialism, but I feel like capitalism has caused so much harm in this country, unfettered capitalism, when you get corporations involved, when you, when you stop having regulations and rules that can punish powerful entities for taking advantage of the system and taking advantage of their workers. Um, and that's been happening so much especially in the last few decades when regulations have been like slowly and quietly like taken away in different pieces of legislation. It's really, really insidious. And I, I think it's a shame that not more Americans are truly educated on the reality of our economic system, what we've been fed as true and absolute and and what we could have, because there's so much potential for something that could be so much better. And I And I do think that, getting there in large part has to be gotten there by social programs, by thinking about our country fellows who are struggling more and not because of anything that they themselves have done, but because they're struggling against a system that was designed to keep them failing or, or designed to help other people who were not like them. Um, yeah, and I recently watched a documentary about, oh, my God, let me see if I can find. It was based on a book by this French dude. Um, and it was about, it, it's about this theory. Doop, 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 doop. Okay, so it's from a book by Thomas Piketty. Piketty? Thomas Piketty. And now I'm going to pause, and then I'm going to say really definitively, Thomas Pideke. And then we're going to fix it in post with however it's really supposed to be. It's magic. Um, so he, there's a documentary based on his book, Capital in the 21st Century, that says, this is a great quote from that, the share of all the money that's made in the economy is going less and less to the workers, so that is declining. The wage share and the profit share, essentially, and the profit share, essentially, what those that own the capital will get is growing, and that, essentially, is about power, and and, you know, we also have things like the media showing unfettered capitalism in kind of a romantic light, like movies like um, uh, uh, The Wall Street, Gordon Gecko saying that greed is good. It It's meant to be an outcry against a capitalist system, but it was twisted and in actuality became sort of a permission for greedy individuals to pursue riches. Um, yeah, and, and, and I also think it's interesting that a lot of people think, no, I'm not poor. I'm a millionaire in waiting. And that really affects the way they think about these things, the way they think about economic justice, because um, they don't even want to put themselves in the category of people who, who need and and deserve more from their country and their government. But they do. Um, so that's, uh, that's interesting. So, so this documentary is talking about how all of this economic disparity, all of this uncertainty, um, all of this poverty where two thirds of the populations is now on track to be poorer than our parents were. And his posit was that that sort of uncertainty is what allows unfettered, loud, proud nationalism, white supremacy and ultimately fascism to take place. That that was definitely one of the big um, reasons why the Nazi party came into power. You know, you already had this racism that was definitely there, and this prejudice against uh, Jewish people, and then um, racism against other um, Eastern Europeans, uh, homophobia, all these other things. That th- just this hatred and mistrust, and this feeling that there is this only one right way to be a German, which reminds me of people who say there's only one right way to be an American, um, and and I and I think that that uncertainty plus the racism and the hatred and the, the, um, the fear of people who were different really, really led to the success that Hitler and the Nazis found in, in Germany. And, and similar to the, the way that fascism was rising in other places in Europe at that time. There was a lot of economic disparity. There was a lot of massive global shift in power and it left these vacuums. Um, so that's a really, really cool documentary. Um, I found it to be really interesting that there were all of these ways that you could connect the the rise and power of capitalism with the rise and power of white nationalism. I thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah, so that's that. Now I want to turn the co- uh, conversation a little bit to what is the role of capitalism and socialism in the theater community in our workforce, um, and and talk about, for example, the origins of the unions and the Actors Union. So labor unions were dating back to the Industrial Revolution in Europe in the 18th century. And the most famous union in our country is the American Federation of Labor, which is um, like the big the big mama union, and it it has like other like smaller unions that are a part of that group. Um, and Actors' Equity is is one of those smaller unions who are members of the American Federation of Labor. So here's a definition of a labor or a trade union. A labor or a trade union is an organized group of workers who unite to make decisions about conditions affecting their work. Labor unions strive to bring economic justice to the workplace and social justice to our nation. Um, Yeah, so just when I was typing this definition down, I was thinking about, okay, what does that look like in our union today? Um, Are they striving to bring economic justice to their workplace in a time of COVID? Um, Are they striving to bring social justice to our nation right now? Um, And uh, I'm not convinced that they are right now. Um, The Actors' Equity... Union, was founded in 1913, represents actors and stage managers. The first strike was just six years later in 1919, and it was a strike against the uh, producers. And someone named Tallulah Bankhead said, and this was a quote, about the response the producers had to this um, actor strike. The producers looked upon actors as silly children, vain, illogical, capricious, even slightly demented. How could artists hope to function in something so plebeian as a union? Yeah. Um, Yeah, and and just another thought on the state of our union, state of our actors' union. State of union is already a thing. Um, Our gig economy, not just in the theater world, but all over the workplace in the country, but our gig economy and our digital age Make labor unions more important, not less important. And it really does, it reminds me of the writer's strike in the 2000s. The networks were trying to basically grandfather in the internet as something performers didn't have to be compensated for at the beginning of streaming, because no one really knew how this was going to impact media. Um, Yeah, and so the writers went on strike for that, and they ended up getting a lot of rights for their compensation for digital media and I just think that these things keep repeating themselves and it's cyclical and even though COVID is not totally a precedent event like it wasn't something like you know early 2000s they're like 2020 crazy pandemic going to happen no I don't think so but I do think that these big issues, these catastrophes that happen, they highlight the cracks in our system. They highlight the places where producers or board members or union leaders or the government might, um, oh my gosh, no, I missed it. Oh no, I was on a really good point and then I don't know what happened to my page. That's really disappointing. Do you guys ever have that happen where you're on a roll and then all of a sudden all the words just disappear from your head and it's embarrassing especially when you're on camera yeah yeah Sam. anyway i'll probably remember that at like three in the morning while i'm completely and fully asleep anyway so um no i remembered oh my god yeah, so big cracks in our system, big cracks in what's going on. And I think the pandemic has shown that there are certain things that perhaps the people who are in charge supposed to really be going to bat for us, putting us first, representing us. I, th- I feel like there are a couple things they're just trying to grandfather in so we don't get the proper compensation for those things. And I think that happens a lot in the theater. Yeah. So that's my spiel. Um, Yeah. I'm going to introduce my guests. We're going to take a little break and then we'll come back and we're going to keep the conversation going. Uh, My guests for tonight are Regina Aquino and Dana Didi. Regina is a DC and Maryland native. She is a first generation Filipinx American. She's a mom to two of the coolest and most adorable kids I have ever laid eyes on. Um, and she's been performing in the DC area since 2002. She's a graduate of the Studio Acting Conservatory, a member of Not In Our House DC, a Helen Hayes Award winner for her stunning work in the events at Theater Alliance. Holy wow. Kick-ass karaoke performer, and always super fun to take a shot of whiskey with. Uh, you've seen her at Woolly Mammoth, the Folger Theater, Only Theater, Theater Alliance, the Kennedy Center, And during COVID, she has served as a facilitator, a performer, reader, roundtable table table activist, and more, bringing light to the issues facing our community. I'm so excited that she's here. And we also have Dane Aditi. Uh, She's a jazz singer, cabaret diva, dancer, actor, writer, priestess witch. Yes, I did copy and paste from her professional Facebook page. It's good. yeah. Um, and then I also have a quote from an article that I'm going to ask them about later. But there, there is this really cool roundtable article that, that Dane and Regina were both a part of earlier this year. And she describes herself as a black, trans-African, Nigerian, indigenous, Cuban performance artist, playwright, author, advocate, screenwriter, priestess, historian, goddess... She's also a member of Not in Our House DC. Uh, She's an Epic Slam poet. She's a Helen Hayes Award winner for Outstanding Original Play or Musical Adaptation for her poem Clytemnestra, also at Theater Alliance. Uh, She recently wrote a play about separation in COVID times called Between Time. She's written for Roundhouse's Homebound series. And right now she's working on a series of vignettes uh, that is designed to take social distancing into consideration. Um, Yeah, I'm just really, really excited to have both of them here. So let's, uh, let's, let's, let's take a five. Let's take a sensible five. Well, you know what? I really like rounding up to multiples of five. So let's take a six. We'll come back at 9:30, and I'll bring on Regina and Dane. All right. See you back in a bit. Wow. Okay. Um, thank you both so much for being here. Um, talking about the actors union and healthcare I'm very, very excited. I have a lot of questions for, for both of you. Um, I wanted to st- uh, start off with some more general ones. Um, the two of you both did a DC Metro Arts um, roundtable. And Dane, you said something that really resonated with me uh, right now, especially as I'm venturing into the exploration of digital art. Uh, And I find myself hearing the same argument over and over again, um, that because theater is meant to be experienced live, that what a lot of people are experimenting with right now in digital space cannot be considered theater because it is not live. Um, And the definition you used in this article, I'm not sure that it was in response to that sort of idea, but... um, but I read it in that in that context from where I from where I was in that moment. And what you said was theater at its heart is a spiritual practice. Before Greece, there was Africa. Theater is deeply connected to the spiritual lifeblood of a people, of a nation, of a land. Therefore, theater has the responsibility to be at the forefront of social justice and change. And and to me, that definition. There's no exclusivity with liveness. It's about s- spirituality and 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 connection and community that doesn't necessarily have to be you're in the same physical space. is that is that something that I'm correct on? Can you explain more about what you mean by that?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I think that <clears throat> I think that there are certainly right the arguments about is theater, is the thing about theater that it is a live experience, right? Meaning that it is being experienced with folks in the audience. um, And that there is a certain type of, um, while there's a certain type of um, eternalness about it, there's also a certain level of ephemeralness, right? Mm -hmm. So that like that performance that evening may ripple out and may shift worlds, right? But it is experienced by those particular individuals in that moment, for however long the show is. Um, Hopefully 90 minutes. But... uh, (laughs) It's me cracking a joke. Um, (laughs) Oh, some of those Shakespeare's, honey. Uh, (laughs) 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 Baby! Um, But part of it too, right, is I I, I think that in that conversation, also what I was discussing was the fact that so many theater institutions attempt to separate theater from the politics of the land, right? Meaning that um, there are theater institutions who imagine themselves beyond politics. And of course, because this is a podcast about healthcare, I think that like, we wouldn't even be having these conversations about healthcare if we had universal healthcare, right? Like this wouldn't even be a matter for the union we would be able to have the health care that we need, and we wouldn't have to worry about having to work a certain number of hours um, (laughs) to do what we have to do or be able to, like, you know, what does it mean to incur uh, medical bills, right? Like, millions of people are in medical debt. So um, part of that quote for me was not simply just about, like, the doing of theater, but the responsibility of theater, right? The calling of theater, um, Mm -hmm. which is that it must, theater must, because we are the theater, the the creatives of the theater and the institution itself is a building, right? Or an organization that we have ordained. Mm -hmm. We have chosen to give it reverence or prominence or whatever, right? Ordained it to produce work. but we ourselves are the theater. So every institution could crumble, but theater would survive because we exist. Um, and, and so because of that, it is imperative that the theater institution be in right relationship with us.
1: Yeah.
0: That's just like, you know, that's like what's coming up for me today. I think.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you for just jumping right into to the fact that if we had universal health care, we wouldn't even need to be having this conversation. There wouldn't be this recent ah what are you doing because it would have been taken care of absolutely. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna get a little bit more into that in a second, but I have another kind of general sort of sort of question that I wanted to ask uh, both of you. Um, yeah, so this I my hope for this podcast my. I want to center social change as it connects to theater. Um, And when I think of examples of artists who marry their art and their activism together, you both immediately come to mind. Um, Can you speak a little bit to how art and activism intersect in your lives, if at all, and, and how that intersection manifests in the way that you navigate the theater community? Okay, oh, sis. Uh,
2: yeah. So I think I think just living my my actual identity makes my work in in theater political. Um, that has been assigned to me. That has been my experience based on based on my my gender, based on my ethnicity, uh, based on my motherhood. Um, that I I was not I was not taught that that would be how I exist in the theater world. I I was taught to be white, and I didn't realize that I was being taught actively to excel at being white or excel at being Asian in white spaces or white stories um, until I was much much older when it became clear to me that um, my existence was defined for me Mm. by people who I wanted to work with and by people who could employ me, um, and how I survived in those spaces. Uh, In the beginnings, I think, you know, were very, very harmful, um, internalizing all of that or or being very competitive with other women of color, particularly Asian women. you know, and living in a, a scarcity mindset, thinking that there can only be one, and you have to be the best all the time when you're competing with my, with white mediocrity. Um, so it's it's something that I I think I wasn't I wasn't I didn't make an active choice to be politically active. I just sort of started to realize that I was tired of being quiet in my discomfort. Um, and my activism started to show up in my art when I started, I was, I was fortunate enough to have come across people who really were interested in, in bringing their beliefs and social justice into their work um, and into the shows that they produced. And I had the opportunity to perform. Um, in shows that were in line with my political activism, but the more I became aware of of who I was within the the community at large, like my gender, my motherhood, my ethnicity, and how how that was always at the forefront ahead of my work, um, I, I I think it just became very clear to me that I everything that I do, every role that I take, has to somehow be advocating for um, equity Hmm. and justice in some way, shape or form. Otherwise, I don't want to do it. Um, Because, as I said, it has always been a part of the way that the industry and the art form saw me. Hmm. So I can no longer blindly participate in being exploited by, by an industry that, that sort of requires me to do that if I want to have an opportunity to be to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's difficult now in a time when I need money and I need weeks so I can have health care. It's very hard to walk away from an audition or an offer where I feel. That it won't be as enriching for me, um, or it won't be as politically focused. Uh, but then again, my body and my voice and my history, being on any stage, is doing the work in some way, shape, or form. Um, so that is a way that I am able to make peace with not, you know, have not having my 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 choice of of jobs all the time. Um, but yeah, that was really. There were a lot of. I'm sorry.
1: No, no, that was wonderful. Thank you. That yeah. makes. Yeah, the fact that you are here, doing this is in itself, because of these definitions placed on you. Political. Um, I. You said something earlier about. How your identity has always been put at the forefront rather than your work, and. I feel like that's also the case with, with everyone. Like on the other side of it, there are people like there, there are white folks who get a lot of roles because they are white, not because of the work that they do. And it's on the the other side of that, you know? And it's, yeah. I'm just repeating what you said. That's all. (laughs) You said it so well. Uh, Dane, do you have anything you want to add to that?
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, it's so interesting because I feel like people, you know, people look at my life now, right? And they look at my career and they're like, oh, my God, girl, you're on fire, girl. You got like you like I see your name on all the things, girl. Right. Like, um, you know, I started uh, working professionally in theater in, in, um, in D.C. in 2002, And um, if anyone who has known me, you know, Regina's known me a long time, that like I initially, you know, did understudying and also I was doing cabarets and writing my own work um, because in 2002, theater was not really invested in um, even, even pretending to care about anybody who wasn't white. Mm -hmm. Um, and so (laughs) for me, um, I have constantly, and I also had a vision of what I wanted my, my artistic life to be. Hmm. And because I initially, right, um, experienced the, uh, the blatant erasure, right, um, and you know, as an Aries, it's like, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do, right? <laughs> ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. You know, I said no to a lot of things because I wanted my career to look a certain way, right? I didn't I didn't want to play Othello, right? I wanted to be Lady M. Um, and so because of that, I really, really, really um, had to invest in other skill sets, right? And other gifts that I had, Um outside of the theater and within the theater so that I could eat hmm. um, and get to a place in in my career where I could say no to certain things. Um, has it always been easy? No. Um, do I feel in this moment um, that I made a lot of right decisions? Absolutely. And I say that to say that um, because of that, I've also learned to say, can we cuss on this podcast? Who listened to this podcast?
1: Oh, yes, we can absolutely (laughs) cuss on this podcast. It's educational. I've
0: I've learned to say what the fuck I want, right? Like, real talk. Like, I have learned to say what the fuck I want. Um, And when I think that, you know the pay needs to be better, I say, the pay needs to be fucking better. Mm. If I think that a theater is being shady, I say, theater, you are being shady. Um, And I've watched others around me um, because of that willingness to, you know, say what the fuck I want, then also feel emboldened, right, um, to say what the fuck they want. You know, like I said before, right, like, The institutions, we don't need the institution. And I think one of the greatest lies that we have been told Mm. is that Mm -hmm. like our survival hinges on the institution and that is not true. The institution's survival hinges on ours, period. Um, And so how do I marry my art and my activism? Everything about our lives is political. To pretend that it is not is a fallacy. Because our identities, our personhood, our rights, all have been legislated.
2: Hmm.
0: All of it. So, yeah, you know.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. Both of you. I can't even look at the screen right now. can't look at you. It's too good. Um, so what the hell is happening with health insurance in the union <laughs> is my next question that I typed out and put in bold. What the hell is happening? Um, I did, I did a little bit of research. I first want to start with the question, how long have you been in the union for both of you? I know it's, it's, you have different, um, experiences in the union in different time periods. I've been in
2: AEA since
0: two thousand six. Okay. Uh, two thousand nineteen. Yeah. Twenty nineteen. Twenty nineteen. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I am a perpetual EMC week holder. I've I've, I've I put off joining two or three different times, mm-hmm. um, and I, I'm sure you both can relate to that question and feeling of like when should I. Turn if I do, and what will that do to affect my work? How will that affect my health insurance? Um, that's always been a, a big anxiety for me, and I and I know it is for a lot of other people. Um, I was looking at the new guidelines proposed by the Equity League Health Fund, and for for those who don't know, the Equity League Health Fund is the board which governs. Um, the health insurance, in all caps, it's appointed by half equity members and half producers on Broadway uh, of the Broadway League, and the, <laughs> a quote that I took from from a uh, from an article said, "These new guidelines may make it more difficult for actors to get health insurance when theaters open back up," and I was like, "May, may, it's gonna do it." So the changes, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, they're changing it from if you work 11 weeks, you get six months of health care. And if you work 19 weeks, you get 12 months of health care to a three-tier system. And the, the, the weeks that you have to get the markers are 12 weeks, 14 weeks, and 16 weeks. So to me, I'm like, OK, you're adding a week for the lowest tier coverage and a week or, a six, or, or six months. Sorry, oh, say no. one more time. They, aren't they saying 16 weeks
2: for six months? Yeah. A year, it's 16 weeks for six months.
1: What is it for, what do you have to do to get a full year of health insurance? A full year was, was it 18 or 19 weeks? Is it, is it, is it 19 weeks still? It's very confusing. Yeah, it was 18 or 19 weeks, like, and, you know, so, but,
2: uh, yeah, so that's for a whole year. It was 11 weeks or six months, and you got to choose between uh, going, well, at least in this area, actually, no, for all of equity, I'm sorry, I don't, it's so hard because I was looking at the the healthcare exchange, and depending on what state you live in, depends on what kind of coverage you get, I don't fucking know, um, but I'm going to be out of insurance come March. Uh, you can choose between Cigna and the plans that they offer there, or you can choose uh, going with Kaiser. But uh, I believe when I first started, I was paying a hundred dollars per quarter for my Cigna uh, uh, PPO. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was great. I could see a chiropractor for. $15. A chiropractor was covered. Like it was the best health insurance for the least amount of money I have ever had in my life. Ever, ever. And I've had babies like, oh, you know what good health coverage is. Yeah. And it costs a fuck ton of money. Even when you are working for a corporation, like I used my last healthcare provider was through my job at Hyatt corporation, which is a multinational, uh, hotel, hotel company. And I was paying, for my family plan, $800 a month for insurance. For my family. If I were single, I believe it would have been $250 a month, which is cheap. If I were single and married, it would have been, uh, or and if I were married or it was two, it was two people, it, me and my partner would have been $400 a month. So the family is another, like, it was insane. Like, how much money you pay, even when you're part of a big corporation that is paying towards insurance companies. Yeah to help you get lower rates. So imagine when I was leaving that job and I had to pay COBRA, which included the company's portion of my insurance, how much I had to pay per month to cover that same plan. Like, it's, it, it is, it's a racket. Insurance is a racket in every industry, but for whatever reason, America has decided that since it's been done this way for, I don't know, 30 years, Thirty years must have been thirty years because it wasn't like this in the seventies. Hmm. And like in the it's 80s, Reagan. Yeah, exactly. It, it all changed in the eighties. It all changed in the eighties, and somehow people were making all this money, and they thought, "Oh well, if I pay for this insurance, then I get to pick and choose whatever doctors." Hmm. But like, was was health was 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 it really that bad before? Because people seem to be thriving in the seventies. Socialist policies seem to make this country boom. So here we are, I'm an actor. I have this really great health insurance plan, which I was super grateful for. And I'm like, I will bust my ass and do whatever show I need to do to get my 19 weeks. So I only have to pay $100 for three months of coverage. I will fucking, like my my dental plan through equity costs more than that, which which I, I believe we can continue to choose to have. So we'll all have beautiful teeth through this yeah. insurance buckle great at least I won't die from an abscess <laughs> I hope but uh, <laughs> at the end of the day now they're saying well they said back in in July that the price per per th- three months had gone up to three hundred dollars mm-hmm. so it was a hundred dollars a month and then starting next year that's when it will be 16 months, and like, and this is the thing: there were no tiered systems. Yeah, you had Cigna, or you had Kaiser, and you could pick whatever plan, but it cost you the same. I think, I, 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 I me only paying a hundred dollars for three months of a PPO. Like, I didn't even look yeah. at the other. I can afford a hundred dollars for three months, like, so I don't know, maybe there were tiered systems, but at the end of the day, all I know is for 19 weeks, I got a full year of a PPO for a hundred dollars for three months, a hundred dollars per quarter. That's insane. And now I I, like, how, how am I gonna get 16 weeks to have the same level of coverage in six months when the theaters are closed? And on top of that, SAG is, is fucking around with equity. So whatever possible weeks we could have come to some kind of agreement on is now being fucked because SAG is saying, well, it's not really theater. You're encroaching on our territory. Yeah. So now all of these filmed performances will no longer qualify for weeks. If producers were even willing to pay towards weeks, who knows? What are producers saying? I don't know. Equity is trying to blame the Equity, fu- the, the equity League, but... Yeah. The equity doing like I get emails every now and then telling me to call my senator right right my representatives I'm like what, what the fuck are you doing I don't see you on MSNBC you're in New York like there are all these pieces about how Broadway isn't going to open why aren't you out there saying actors are gonna die BIPOC actors are going to die like
0: it's because this country right this country um, has always wanted to privatize art. And what I mean by that, right, is that this country has wanted um, artists to be indebted um, to the rich, period. That is what, that is what um, has often happened, right? And so for, you know, what has been said so often is, oh, well, why don't you choose another profession? Even though literally during the pandemic, it was art that helped to soothe people's souls. Even though during the pandemic, it was artists who were out there on the fucking streets protesting too. Even though anyone who works in any kind of organizing space understand how imperative artists are to liberation. Um, even though literally everybody want to have a motherfucking movie about um, artists who have passed away and call them such inspirations and such fighters, but you actually don't want to love on artists now while they're here. You don't want to do that. Hmm. Um, and hmm. part of that, right, is that like part of it is is because theater itself is rooted in capitalism and is rooted in a system that's not that that does not that does not um, that does not think that the creatives who have made theater institutions successful by way of you know utilizing their gift in service of the art, um, that they are worthy of being cared about unless they are engaging in an act that brings pleasure or something else, to their white rich audiences. And it is inhumane and it is violent. The simple fact that this country is supposedly the richest country in the world, and yet there is not universal health care, is a travesty. There are 41% of Americans right now in this moment who are suffering under the weight of medical debt. There are seven million elders as of 2019 who are suffering under the weight of medical debt. And so for me, it is one of these things where it is not by happenstance, right? That all of these policies are happening at once. It is not by happenstance that Amy is more than likely probably going to be confirmed by a GOP-controlled Senate. It is not by happenstance that at once all of these what we like to call social justice issues are coming to the forefront and being demanded to be addressed. It is not by happenstance that we are being forced not simply as a world, but as a theater community to confront white supremacy. Because at the root of this country is colonization. And colonization has said that BIPOC people do not deserve to live, period. And that if they are living, somehow they must be shackled to a system that does not honor their humanity. And so when I say that the theater institutions have to do fucking better, I include the union with that because the union is a theater organization. Like, fuck, the fucking union should have been advocating for Medicare for all, period. Point blank, period, Pooh, as Patty LaBelle would say. <laughs> theater institutions want to sit up here and they want to have a motherfucking um, we see you white American theater moment and release their motherfucking Black Lives Matter statement. But at this very moment, while we are sitting here talking on this thing, they Broadway, you know what the Broadway producers could have done? They could have actually made this a whole motherfucking year of listening to plays and experiencing plays virtually by way of reading of playwrights who they probably would have never thought of even reading. And every regional theater, I understand that they are fighting for their survival, but you know what though? I would rather have a country where the artists are taken care of and able to eat and put a roof over their head and, and be able to have their medical issues taken care of than have some shiny building that is empty until mm-hmm. June, 2021. Period. And so for me, this was a moment for theater to reimagine the existence of the work and it has failed because all it could think about was it's the, the survival of the institution of building. And how inhumane is that? There were so many things that could have happened in this moment. That would have, oh, okay, shady, zoom. Um, there are so many things that could have happened in this moment, right? That could have allowed for us to thrive and, and actually be at the forefront of change. And because of capitalism and fake allyship, theaters did the same, so many theaters, not all of them, because you know some of them I fuck what I love. But, like, so many theaters are the same type of shit that our own government is doing to us. Which is say that you only matter when you are doing things to bring honor to me. Hmm. And it is fucking ridiculous. It is time for a change. It is time for a change.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I'm just, thank you both for saying all of that. I I think this is the kind of candid, blunt honesty that needs to be in all conversations surrounding the future of our industry, such as it is. I'm really glad you, you brought up the fact uh, that you, um, when you think about the institutions and how theater needs to change, you think of the union as a part of that, absolutely. I, I have a note here actually about, from the principles page uh, from the We See You uh, White American Theater where they talk specifically about the unions. Um, And and the quote is, just as our unions have fought for our pay equity and working conditions, we insist that our unions listen to our evolving needs for better treatment. I love that word, evolving, because like like you said, um, just because this was something that was done like 30 years ago or, you know, in 1913, doesn't mean that it's going to keep working. Humans evolve and we have to keep changing it to make sure that we're taking care of everyone. Um, we demand healthcare without dependence on work weeks, or a lower threshold for BIPOC artists hired less often. We demand shorter, more humane tech days and work weeks with more time allotted for the production process. Oh my God, honestly, like why do we get two minutes for production and, and tech? Like, oh Jesus. Um, yeah, I yeah I think that's such a necessary demand. Um for everyone and and I and, and I love that you keep going back to this core, both of you, keep going back to this core point of how this country is built on colonization and how this American and and European theater tradition is built in capitalism because I I do think those things are so enmeshed together. and it's for the same reason that Dane you just said that, it's not an it's not an accident that all of these things are, co- are coming to a head at, at the same time um, because they're all related. Yeah. Um, yeah and and,
2: and I, I, I just want to push back to that one thing. And we see you, which, you know, kind of rubs me the wrong way right now uh, in hearing it again. Um, that, you know, just as just as the union advocates for pay equity. Um, You know, the union has done the bare minimum when it comes to pay equity. The union has told producers that they need to establish a minimum amount of pay per week. But again, white supremacy uh, and and patriarchy find its way into the system to manipulate it for the benefit of white people and men. Um, Because I guarantee you, I may be making the minimum amount but I, uh, the, the white guy who they're offering that lead to because nine times out of 10, the lead is a white dude, is probably making at least $400 a week more than me, if not more. At least. Often and 400 that shit adds up. Double what I make, nine times out of 10... So what is this pay equity, equities fucking, ta- or we see you talking about? Like there's no, and in the end, and, and you can ask for favored nations. You can say, I want everybody to be paid the same, but there are ways around that. People can ask for, can you increase my travel stipend? Can you give me more of a per diem so that I can make more money on the side? And that way equity doesn't need to know, like there are ways around it that, that, that the, the theater system will always support the people who fall in line. Or the people who are the people who are just perpetuating the same stories that, you know, white patriarchy wants to tell itself. And and it will continuously oppress minorities. It will continuously oppress women and non-men. And, and it is it's like it, it there's no way that we can we can address any of it unless we address all of it. Like we have to mm. say. You have to pay us all the same. Like, you know, uh, and and if you're not going to pay us all the same, you need to be transparent about it, and you need to be transparent about why. I need to know why this white dude, I understand he's worked here for 10 other shows than I have, but I need to understand why, if he has a smaller role than me, he's getting paid double my money. Like, explain that to me in a way that makes sense, so that I don't have to hear about it or suspect, and then just guard what's mine, you know? Like it creates this environment where everybody's just protecting what's theirs, that I go into I go into accepting a role with this contract negotiation mindset to make sure that I can live. Because the producer doesn't care about that, even though they're looking at the Helen Hayes Award I just won and they're trying to capitalize off the speech that I made and look how progressive we are. We're we're putting this Asian woman in the Shakespearean lead and oh good on us, please. Like, just like, don't, I, I know what you're using me for. Everyone knows, but at least live up to the bullshit that you're selling to everybody else. Because if you're not, then I'm not coming back. I don't need it. Even though I fucking do like, As Dane said, like the theater cannot exist without us. So we will find a way. Artists find ways to survive. We have been surviving. The theater is now like, how do we survive? I've been surviving. I've been doing this. I've been living gig to gig. I've been making my life work. And and it may be exhausting, but I've been doing it. It's the institutions that are now shitting their pants because they don't know how they're gonna do it. And I, I don't give a fuck because where were you when I was hoping I could have some insurance?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would like to take a break because as Dane said earlier, Zoom is being really shady. Got to send y'all something new. And then when we come back, um, I have a couple more questions slash ideas that I would like to get your opinion improvisation on, yes, and this moment with me. And then I love lists, so I made a list of some plays that talk about workers and or unions, and I want to do, like, a lightning round. I want to get your, like, if you hear this, what is the word that comes up? And we'll see what happens. It's going to be great. Okay, so um, I'm going to turn this thing off, and then... I will get y'all a new Zoom link because <laughs> here we are. Anyway, anyway, welcome back. Thank are you. We back? <laughs> We're back now. Okay. Thank you back. Thank you back. Um, uh, so I have, and, and this is really just, this is something that I wrote while I was doing my notes on all of this, and it's something that you both have already touched on, which, which is wonderful, but I, I, I want to read my view on this and, and get your takes. Um, so people in positions of power keep workers in place by holding things like pay, healthcare, and in the case of theater, casting opportunities over their heads as incentives to keep them quiet and keep them complacent and complicit. And this has a real life application when in so many ways. But for example, when people feel obligated to go to bat for or defend powerful men who have given them career opportunities that have given them access to status in the field. And then when those powerful men are accused of nefarious behavior and actions, this perpetuates a cycle of abuse and it also perpetuates the myth of the gatekeeper and continues to give certain members of the community patriarchal power in a way over the rest of the community. And, and really just instills fear in in people who could potentially break out of the system because they think, I'm going to lose work from this. I'm going to lose casting job opportunities. I'm going to be blacklisted or such and such person may or may not have done some horrible thing, but look at what they've done for me personally. I wouldn't have gotten healthcare this last year if I hadn't worked at their theater the whole time. And I, I think that, I think it speaks to some of what you all were saying about the way the system keeps people in line and keeps these power structures in play. Yeah, that's what I wrote, kind of. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like wait, are we responding? What's I happening? I don't know. <laughs> I, I just wanted a good grade on my paper so I showed you. Astute. I agree. Thank you. And I know you agree because you already said it earlier. But I said it earlier too in a completely <laughs> different thing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we are saying... anyway, same thoughts. This is the late night portion of the program. And I love it. Dane said earlier. Okay. Portion this is what people pay for. <laughs> exactly. Right. This is what people are Un-censored. not paying for. <laughs> Censored before. Dane. Who are we kidding? I thought she's like, Can we can we cuss on the podcast? Yes. No,
2: I'm like, please. Like that's like I'll add a little Oh e. listen,
1: because
0: y'all know, right? Like when you're on the radio, you can't. And yeah. so like you'll get fine on the radio. So I'm like, wait, what can I say yeah.
1: No, this is it's all parody satire, so you can say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have a little lightning round that I wanna do. I put together a list. I love lists, um, but I put together a list of shows that in some way talk about workers, unions, and or socialism. And fun fact, some of these have been performed in D.C. in the recent past at historically inaccessible theaters. That's all I'll say about that. Okay, so... Immediate immediate thoughts. Either like, oh, I like this one, I don't like this one, or what the fuck is that? I've never heard of it. Waiting for Lefty. Clifford Odette. What the fuck is that? Cool.
0: (laughs) Is that some white people shit? That's the white
1: people shit. Yes. So it was it was one of like several plays written in the thirties about the plight of the worker. Um, it was that one, Days to Come by Lillian Hellman, The Cradle Will Rock by Mark Blitzstein. Um, oh, very, gosh. very... Some of these names, I'm like, I haven't... Child, The Cradle Will Rock. I said, child, I ain't heard that name
0: in a long time. At <laughs> <laughs> a degree.
2: Oh, I, see that. I think of The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, that like, oh. like <laughs> movie from the 90s. <laughs> I don't I
1: don't hear Labor Union. You don't hear Labor Union? Wow. <laughs> What about Carol Churchill's socialist feminist plays, Light Shining in Buckinghamshire? I don't know that one either. I know Top Girls. Yeah, Top Girls and Cloud Nine are on the list, as is Vinegar oh, Tom. Oh, wow, Cloud Yeah, Cloud Nine. <laughs> <laughs> Cloud Nine's a union play? No, it's a. It's one of. I didn't think so. No, it's not a union oh, I, play, sorry. but it's 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 listed under her socialist feminist plays that were written during the time of the Thatcher period, and uh, and uh, have been dissected by by many a nerd to to say, well, she's writing these plays in response to Thatcherism, and and looking at feminism as um, being intrinsically tied to socialism
0: because cloud nine that's the one where like characters like switch right yes. um like if you you can play, you play women and men in that show yes <clears throat> say one actor plays several different um
1: yes yeah yeah, yeah. and it, it starts it starts in in like victorian colonial mm-hmm. africa and then it ends in like a century and a half later in London, and it's the same characters, same family, played by different actors, and changed because of their location and and all of those other things. It's really, really interesting. Um, And it's really problematic, too. She has, it's written in the script that one of the actors, that one of the characters is uh, is a slave who works for them in Africa and then but in in the character description she, she says these characters are played by the identity that they wish they were so she has a white actor playing this man in blackface basically and she's saying this is that way because he wishes he was a white man because it's very weird um, the I'm-
0: I wonder if she ever apologized about that.
1: Yeah. Um, I I yeah. honestly don't know. I wonder
0: does that ever happen? And then also let me just say something. We say an enslaved person. An
1: enslaved person. hmm Because that's not their enslaved. identity. That yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. They're not slaves. They have mm-hmm. been enslaved. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, how about ragtime?
0: <sighs> Listen, y'all. Let me tell y'all something about motherfucking ragtime. Why do we why why do we keep doing it? It is so fucking long.
1: I was I was that wondering show, if you
0: could say long. <laughs>
1: it's so long. It, and
0: and so uninteresting. Even when it is done well. It is I do not fucking care about white saviorism. I do not care about it. I do not care to have a show where we literally have these relationships with white folks in which white folks are allowed to not be accountable to any of their shit I'm done with that shit and so as far as I feel about ragtime some cute songs go on, keep singing daddy somembo gone on, go on keep them going we can never go back to before yes God. But like,
1: <laughs> no. Absolutely, yeah. It the only person who really sees the consequences of their actions is Colehouse Walker. It's really, yeah.
0: Right, a black person. I mean, that's a black
1: character.
2: <laughs>
1: that's so, a black. So he's the one that has to die at the end. Is a he? black character. That's the rules, Regina. That's how it has to happen. No, I'm just kidding. I haven't seen, it. Yes. Oh, yes. Haven't seen yes, it. yes, 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 yes. Uh, <laughs> he is the black character. Yes. Got it, yeah.
2: Just, I'm just like making sure that I know that this is actually in line with the way that American theater has perpetuated their ideas of race. That we can have a show about black people, but the only people who are held accountable for any any actions are black people. Like, yes. It's not even, and that's the thing. It's not even about black
0: people. It's, it's not. It's really about this white family, who are like supposed to be the good white. Well, the wife is a good white. Her mm-hmm. brother is the rebellious white, and then yeah, like he's her the four chan husband...
1: white.
2: <laughs> Does the
1: rebellious white mean that he's the white person that's friends with black people? Or well, he the, goes. The... He goes to a union meeting. And um, and then he tells Cole House Walker at the end that he knows how to blow things up. And he's like, I know how you can get revenge for for this horrible trauma where like because Cole House Walker's um, wife, Sarah, is murdered um, for trying to talk to the president. It's really great. Uh, uh, so,
2: yeah, child, so it is, yeah. uh, again, rooted in trauma. Like, isn't yes,
1: that?
2: yes, yes. Uh, people can't be on stage without trauma right and it's not told from the it's not
0: told from the perspective of the immigrants or the black people even though it pretends it is it's told from the perspective of this white family and i get that it's based on a fucking book or whatever right Yes. but it's like it's like you know for me like we existed we existed Hmm. black and brown and indigenous people existed during the time period of fucking rad time. So I'm like more interested in stories about us as opposed to this white family.
1: Yeah. Like, cause it does, it, it, it markets itself as something that is told from all perspectives and it uses the conceit of breaking the fourth wall and everyone narrating kind of their own little chapters, but it really is. It centers around the story and, and, and the feelings and the evolution of the white family. So Absolutely.
2: It's it's a story about all of these different perspectives and yes. ethnicity, but it's through the white lens.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's Absolutely. about, it's just exploitation of bodies again. Like it's, it's just through the white lens. Mm-hmm. It's with gorgeous mm-hmm. music, pretty sounding <laughs> exploitation. <Cool. Right. laughs> uh, uh, Stephen Flaherty and Terrence McNally wrote the book *Libretto*. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. How about and 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 this is this is the thing. I I put all of these in the order that they were written, and it really is until you get to. 2014 i have a play listed here called to the bone by lisa ramirez that's really that's the first time on this very extensive no it's very sparse list of plays about workers in any sort of way unions in any sort of way socialism in any sort of way that that happens which i think is is telling Because, like, you know, we were talking before the break about how all of these things are connected, and yet the way they are told in stories is very isolated. It's always, not always, but for the most part, and especially until a few years ago, told from the white lens and told by white people. Um, And then we start getting into some really, really good, um, interesting ones. I put Gloria by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins on here. It's not a union play but it is a play about the workplace um and um and regina i don't know if you remember this but i met you in the lobby of woolly mammoth when we were both there for our gloria auditions and you were there and you were in there for like half an hour and you came out and i was just like getting my coffee sweat on And you came out and you were just like, that was the weirdest experience I've ever had. (laughs) I had no idea. (laughs) I don't know the context for it, but you just came out and you were just like, (laughs) I don't know. But I remember that was one of the first times that I was like, I'm in a room with Regina Aquino. (laughs) were you on that sofa were you there with
2: with jen's baby yes 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 remember that yeah
1: yeah yeah (laughs) that was a fucking audition it was a weird play it is a weird play get it i didn't get it no me neither didn't get it but it's it's
2: just like i didn't it's like i i when you walk out of an audition being like huh i
1: don't (laughs) know I don't know how to feel about any of that. Like, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. See you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Well, how great. The beginning, the beginning. Um, and the next one I have on the list, which is actually, you know, has a lot more to do with labor unions and, and workplace is Skeleton Crew. Right. And that one was recently done at Studio. Am I remembering oh. that correctly? I did not see that production. Did either one of you get a chance to see that? I didn't get to see
0: it. Okay. Um, but she's a brilliant playwright.
1: Dominic Morris Yeah. Yeah.
0: Ooh. Absolutely.
1: Lynn Nottage wrote Sweat. Right. That's next on my list. Yeah.
2: Okay, great. Because like they came out around the same time. Yes. I remember it was in Baltimore, and then Skeleton Crew was in DC. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. it's just so funny how these white theaters just decide to put on these like parallel plays
1: in their token slot, like. Yeah. And I saw Sweat at Arena. I got a standing room only ticket. And it was $60. So like, can we talk about that? And and Sweat is about working class people. It's about working class issues. It's about poverty and racism. And every single person, for the most part, in that theater was a white, middle, or upper class liberal and it i i was recently watching um a ted talk by oscar eustis the 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 public theater um, artistic director and they ended up actually after um once it got to new york they they did a tour of sweat in pennsylvania ohio michigan wisconsin and minnesota trying to bring the play to people who were living in the communities that it was actually talking about, um, which I thought was cool. He has this really great Ted talk called why theater can save democracy. And one of the things he talks about is how inaccessible theater is to so many people because of location, because of price. Um, and I, and I thought it was, you know, I I think it can be argued that it's, it's a, it's a, it's a lip service sort of action to do because how much does it really change? Um, Especially when it's still working within, within the system that, you know, the public theater benefits from. Um, But I, I I don't know. Because also, because also
0: like the thing about, you know, y'all know, I love the public theater. Okay. Y'all know, I got some people who work there who I adore, but the reality is, it's like, you know, even things like the fact that, the public theater is in New York, right? And um, the number of Black trans women who have who have been murdered in New York, and the public theater has released no statement about being being in um, solidarity with Black trans communities. The fact that the public theater has not produced, that I, I know to date, any Black trans playwrights on any of their main stages is is a little bit ludicrous to me. So. This idea about theater saving anything, yes, but then also, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? So, that's just my thought about things like that. Absolutely, no shade.
2: It's a lofty idea too, because like, what theater is going to save democracy? Who's who's theater? Like, who who who? Which theater makers? Like. Yes, the the, the the spirit of theater, the art, uh, the artists, the people who are affected by it and the stories that they're telling. But but really, like, all those people who watched Sweat at Arena, you know, yeah. I'm sure people who, who were sitting in that audience, you know, and then watching Junk and then that, that whole scene about the union guy and, like, big business screwing over the unions and the workers and blah, blah, blah. All of those people benefit from the system that this art is criticizing Mm -hmm. all of these people you know they buy their subscriber tickets and they like to participate and they it gives them like a pat on the back for like exactly look look i'm aware of how real people feel so that makes me that means that i have empathy so i don't have to carry around this guilt and, like, I think that's really what separates liberals from, from Republicans. Is that liberals feel guilt? They feel white guilt. Republicans don't. That's the difference. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. They all they show up at the same fucking Capitol, and, and, like, they argue over the same bullshit, but it's whether you feel guilt or not. You're benefiting from the system that you're not changing. You're watching theater that's calling out systems that you perpetuate. So it's like... Sure, theater can save it, Oscar. Thanks. Like I didn't need the white guy at on top of one of the most visible theaters in New York to tell me that. Hmm. But like, what is he saving? What is he saving? Like, sure you're putting you're putting BIPOC playwrights on your stage, but like, how much are you charging for those fucking tickets? Hmm. And and like like it becomes it's just about commodification right this fucking structure this non-profit profit theater fallacy run under these capitalist corporate structures that exploit artists and benefit theater institutions only to like hold up a mirror that is okay to the people who are making the laws like it it doesn't it's not changing anything the theater that they are making is are it's perpetuating the system mm-hmm. The theater that they, they, they uh, like Dane,
1: Dane said, everything everything is always back to what Dane at some point said. They cannot I'm get Im- that tattooed on me. They can't- <laughs> what Dane said. Like, what, like well, let me find the, the, the quote that I have of Lady Dane on my body. And my body is just like etched, it's like memento, but it's just quotes by Dane. White people don't have the imagination to save the world because they've created this world. Yeah.
2: They have to move, move out the way. Like, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and it's just, ugh, ugh, God, Oscar, Oscar. Like, that just, ooh. Yeah. It's also, it's
0: also like, you know, this idea of democracy that we think about, right, that we were taught is not true in, in the United States. The United States is not a democracy. At best, it is a representative democracy, right? Which means that... Um, yes, your vote picks your local officials. If, if you believe in voting, please go vote. Um, and please go vote for some folks who are going to make sure you have the health care you need, um, that, that, that you are able to, you know, do the things that you need to do in your life and be, and be more than all right. Um, but uh, the thing about this country, right, is that fascism has always been the monster under the bed. And that monster has been fed by white supremacy, patriarchy, anti-blackness, transphobia, homophobia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so what has happened now in 2020 is that the monster has been revealed. And what you learn is, right, is that it's not just the monster under the bed, it's actually the house.
2: Hmm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so
2: the call is coming from inside <laughs> the house The call is coming from inside the house
0: and so the reality is right is that if we are really thinking that theater can save democracy hmm. then theater itself by its, by its own virtue of being, of also needing to be saved, is that it must be willing to divest from white supremacy and dismantle white supremacy entirely. So that means every creative who makes up a theater, right, from Oscar to an actor who literally comes and works at the public theater, from the motherfucking person who... Um, during the morning time cleans the public theater. Everyone must be committed to dismantling internalized white supremacy and systematic white supremacy. But as Regina has said, right, there are sometimes people who are on boards and who are funders or who are audience members or subscription patrons who benefit from these systems of white supremacy And so what they're really asking of theater is not to be radically changed or transformed. They're asking to feel a little less guilty. I saw a show at a theater that that I, you know, I, I saw a show at a theater and I asked my friend, do you think that your white audience members when they left that show that you produced, that they saw the humanity and the black and brown homeless people who are literally outside your theater. And the answer, we all know what the answer was. And so what are we doing here? What are we doing here? Is it to pat ourselves on the back? Is it for us to be considered the most woke? Is it for us to somehow, you know, be the most liberal or, or the most socialist or the most progressive? Or are we truly, truly committed to creating a world that is free of oppression? And if we are committed to that thing, then the ways in which theater is, the ways in which, no, I will say this, who is, who is prioritized in our theaters, our theater institutions must change. Period.
2: Well, it, yeah, yeah. Because in order for theater to save democracy, theater must be democratic. Come and it on, is, it is not democratic. Come on, exactly what you said.
0: It must be. It must be the shining beacon. It must be the example. It must be when when it holds up the mirror to society. It must also hold the mirror to itself. And if we are honest, so many theater institutions must find themselves wanting. If they're being honest about what's in the mirror, about what's being reflected back to them. So who are we beyond performative allyship? Who are we beyond that? It is inconvenient. And we have to start being honest about that. It is inconvenient for theaters to be democratic. It is inconvenient for theaters to hold their boards and artistic directors and leadership and white audience members accountable. It is inconvenient. Because what white supremacy has said is that if you speak up against me I can take it away. And there are so many people who may have never (laughs) known what hungry is but have no plan on finding out either.
1: Hmm.
0: And so when I say, when I sit here in this conversation, when I started this conversation off, there were days when I did not know where I was going to sleep that evening. I will not be beholden to a theater institution that does not love me or believe that I have the right, not simply to live, not simply to be a motherfucking, you know, token for their motherfucking audience members to feel better because they saw the trans play the award-winning trans play, but I had the right to thrive as all of who I am at all times, period, a black trans woman. And I deserve to not only watch and experience myself be reflected on stage by way of the people on stage, the playwrights produced Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, But I also deserve to be able to take up space in an institution that has benefited, may I add, from my oppression, if we wanna get down to brass tacks, from the land that the theater is on to the money that funnels through the theater. It is all blood money Period. So the theater institution owes the communities of color something, and it is time to pay. I thought about that.
1: Thank you. Um, I have one more question, and. (laughs) (laughs) We only have five and a half minutes left. And I feel like you both have been answering this question constantly and consistently in every single thing that you've said tonight. And the question is, you know, when we get a vaccine and it is safe to have full capacity again, and things go back to normal, but please God, no, don't go back to the way they were before. What do you hope to have seen and experienced and witnessed change in the theater. Ooh. Uh. <laughs> and we can just play back the whole podcast at this point because <laughs> what what do what, what, is. what do I hope uh, what do of, you what do you demand? I, 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 you know a, a real a
2: real fucking demand right now is like I want theaters who are so concerned about the optics of what they're saying to fucking pay me when they ask me for my goddamn info. Like When you ask me about my lived experience as an Asian artist, an Asian woman in this community, and how I can feel safer in your space, you can go ahead by, by giving me money for asking me about, the, about information that, that you can't get from anyone else because you don't hire anyone other than white people on your staff. You don't know how to engage with communities. You have never done that. And you don't have anyone close enough to you to talk to. So at the end of the day, pay me. And even if we are friends and you're asking me for my cultural contribution, because you feel a lot of pressure of, of how the community is judging you at this moment, fucking pay me, pay me, pay me my money, pay me my money. I don't care what your budget for this year was. I don't care because at the end of the day, do you know what my budget for the year was? Do you have any idea how much work I lost or the fact hmm. that I, I was going to have insurance for a whole other year, but my shows and my shoots got canceled. And I, like, I have to figure out a way to do it. So you find a way to pay me $150 to sit on the fucking phone with me so I can tell you all the ways in which your theater has harmed me and all the ways in which I could have thought you could have engaged communities that you were trying to use my body for. Like, hmm. You could have done that before I got there. But you didn't. You waited till I was there to ask me the questions about marketing and engagement. I'm like, it's too late now, friend. You yeah. picked the show a year ago. You picked the show a year ago and you're going to ask me now. Pay me my fucking money. I'm getting emails from people like we'd like to have a talk about racial equity and I'm happy to pay you thirty dollars. I don't even fucking reply. I don't even fucking reply. I, and I thought it would go away. and I got a second one. Yeah, $30 for, for your time, and we're going to have a consultant there to, to, you know, ask you questions, 45 minutes of your time. I'm like, no, because, like, at the end of the day, if you really cared about my personal experience, if you really wanted to do structural change, you would understand that it's going to take more than two 45-minute sit-downs with some artists on a Zoom and one consultant.
1: Hmm.
2: Like, it's going to take a lot of fucking time.
1: And, like... <laughs> And so what are they paying the consultant? Because it sounds like you're doing consulting too in those moments.
2: That's what I want, that's what I want. But that's not like a big ask of like, I want healthcare. I mean, of course I want healthcare. I want to not get sick and potentially die.
1: Wouldn't that be nice?
2: But that's like, that's so far beyond my immediate life. Like hmm. I have until March to figure that shit out and I'm saving my money, I'm gonna be all right. I'll figure it out. But like, if theaters wanna to talk to me, Pay me for my fucking
1: time. Hmm. So if if theaters do want to talk to you, where can they find you on social media? (laughs) And that's my segue into that. I hate it. I'm so sorry. Uh,
2: I am on Instagram at Regina R. Aquino. And uh, I have a Facebook page. That's Regina R. Aquino. And I have a website. That's ReginaAquino.com. And how about you, Dane?
0: Um. Can find me at um, my Instagram is at Lady Dane um, fe. Um, that's where you're gonna get the you're gonna get the philosophy and the tips. Um, And then on Twitter you're gonna get politics and me cussing folks out. Um, but also you can go to my website. I have 14 books published. www.ladydanefe.com I really want theaters to be truly committed to dismantling white supremacy. That is my demand. Hmm completely um, ever creative in their lives and systematically dismantle it,
1: Thank you both so much. This is not a presidential debate, so it is gonna cut me off right at the time. Um, But thank you, I really appreciate you both so much being here and taking the time out of your days. I know you're both incredibly busy, um, so I thank you from the bottom of my heart. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. I love you both. (laughs) Get some sleep. We'll do peace. Bye. Oh, wow. That was wonderful. Um, again, my guests tonight were Regina Aquino and Dane Aditi. I am just, maybe I should actually put my face up here so y'all can see me. Hey, there it is. I'm slowly figuring this stuff out. Um, Wow. Okay. Amazing. Thank you all who, who joined us on the chat tonight. Um, we're going to get this episode out on a podcast very soon. I'm so thrilled. I cannot wait for everyone to have access to this conversation because it was truly, truly invaluable. Um, yeah, that's it for me. Thanks for joining me on a Wednesday this week for the caro dub after school theater camp power hour with me caro dub and now i'm really just vamping so i'm gonna go so i can go to bed good night everyone